your dreams. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Mormon Stories podcast. My name is John DeLynn. I'm very excited to have you with us today. I'm happy to announce that uh, FeedBurner.com tells me that we have now 115 subscribers to this podcast, which I'm kind of proud of, seeing that it's only been around for a few weeks. Um, you may be interested in knowing that I now have a blog associated with the podcast. So if you go to www.mormonstories.org, um, you'll be able to see a blog where um, this podcast that you're listening to will be posted. You'll be able to give your feedback, um, uh, you know, what you liked, what you didn't like, etc. You can now go up to that blog and uh, and participate in the conversation. All past podcasts as well um, have been put on that blog. Um, so we're hoping to try and form a little community here around um, this podcast. Uh, I'd like to in- encourage all of you to uh, send us your email and feedback, either on the blog itself or at uh, mormonstories at gmail.com. Uh, but most importantly, we're just excited to have you with us today. Um, today's topic is one that um, we hope you'll find really interesting. Um, I think I'll tell you a personal story as an introduction um, and then we'll introduce our guest. Um, when I was uh, in the MTC, uh, I received a letter from a good friend named Tina. And while I was in the, uh, you know, I started uh, reading the letter and I was surprised. To tell you a little bit about Tina, um, Tina, uh, I grew up with Tina in Katy, Texas. Her um, Her family was of much prominence in the Houston area, in the church. Uh, her grandfather had been stake president. Many of her uncles had been bishops in various wards throughout the stake. And her father, um, ha- at the time that she wrote me, had been recently the second counselor in the stake presidency. And Tina, uh, if you could ever call someone a goody-goody or a Molly Mormon or someone who was just really devout to the church, uh, that was Tina. Uh, we never knew of Tina ever getting into trouble. She was r- r- very devout in seminary attendance and church attendance. Just sort of the perfect, sweet, nice girl. Um, and very devout in the church. And her family and my family went sort of way back uh, in Katy. Well, uh, I was in the MTC, all excited to go on my mission to Guatemala. And I get this letter from Tina. And Tina basically says, hey, John, I've left the church. And I just wanted you to know that I don't believe in the church anymore. And I was stunned because I, I um, at the time, you know, leaving the church was the furthest thing from my mind. And, and hearing about Tina leave the church was just totally dumbfounding to me. So, you know, in correspondence, I talked to Tina and I said, hey, you know, why have you left? What's going on? And her basic answer was, well, John, I got a hold of this book that talked about... Um, the connections between uh, the Masonic Lodge um, and the Masonic Temple and the church and the LDS Temple. And as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper, um, you know, to me, this signified that the church wasn't true and it wasn't something I wanted to be a part of anymore. And not only did that happen, but in subsequent correspondence, she told me that her father, who was second counselor in the stake presidency, um, was so concerned about her leaving that he started digging into this issue as well. And as he dug deeper and deeper and deeper, um, he left the church, his wife left the church, 
several of the um, members of the family left the church and it was like this huge domino effect. And that was sort of my introduction into the issue of Mormons and Masonry. So with that, I wanted to um, uh, welcome my guest uh, today, who uh, his name is Greg Kearney. Is that how you pronounce it, Greg? Kearney. Kearney, all right. Um, Greg Kearney uh, was born and raised in Maine. He attended boarding schools in New England from the age of 12 until graduating from the Quaker-run Oak Grove Coburn School. He is a lifelong member of the LDS Church, having attended up um, in the Farmington Ward, which is one of the oldest LDS congregations in the world. He's a graduate of BYU with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in design and completed graduate work in American Studies, focusing his research on Freemasonry and its influence on American history. Um, you'll also be interested to know that he is a life member of Franklin Lodge Number 123 in New Sharon, Maine, as well as several lodges of research in the United States and Europe. Um, he also serves as the Rocky Mountain reporter for the French news agency AFP. Uh, he lives in Casper, Wyoming with his wife, Tamara. They are the proud parents of three children, Sean, 24, Shannon, 20, and Nathaniel, 6. It also says that he has traveled extensively, including uh, posting to Atlantic Canada, Quebec, and Sweden. So uh, with that, uh, Greg, I just want to thank you for coming on Mormon Stories. Well, thank you. Uh, it's an irony that your friend's experience could have easily been bis dissuaded um, had they known about a little bit of the real history. <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly the exact reason that I uh, wanted to have you on today, other than uh, just to tell your story. Here at Mormon Stories, yeah. we try and let people tell their story, but we we start from the standpoint of wanting to let people who come across history or challenges that that makes them uncomfortable or that's different from what they were taught, let them know, hey, you don't have to leave, don't make a rash decision, there are people who have traveled down these paths before. There are things that you can learn that can keep you from, from losing your faith. So that's exactly yeah. why we're here today. If, yeah. if you don't mind, why don't you tell us just a little bit about uh, your childhood? Tell us about growing up. Tell us um, about your involvement in the church at an early age and what led you um, to want to study uh, masonry uh, at BYU. I believe that's where you studied it. I studied fine art, yes. Um, I was, I am the product of a typical uh, northern New England upbringing. My father was the only doctor in town of a small town of about 750 people. Um, three churches in town, Methodist, Congregationalist, and Latter-day Saint. Mm. Wow. Um, <laughs> and you say that this and, is one of the earliest congregations. Do you know yeah, how... Farmington, Farmington Ward traces its origins back to about 1840 or so. Um, David Whitmer uh, established the first congregations in Farmington. And for a, quite a long time in church history, Farmington was the headquarters of what was called the main district. Huh. Um, Farmington, um, at the time of the martyrdom, um, the saints in the saints in Farmington really didn't know what path to follow. 
Um, and so they decided to follow none of them. <laughs> Eventually just kind of stand and wait. Um, but periodically, um, various member groups of members in Farmington would go either to Utah or into the Midwest, depending on, you know, what flavor of Mormonism they favored. <laughs> right. Um, Farmington, Utah, was named for, because settlers from Farmington, Maine, came and lived there. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So, um, but others just kind of stayed behind, and in the uh, early 20th century, uh, missionaries from the Salt Lake Church were sent into the back into the area, and they found this kind of this remnant congregation. Uh, meeting in a great big old church in downtown Farmington. So they had been they had not been formally associated with any head church, but had just continued practicing their flavor of Mormonism, huh? Yeah, they just kind of you know stood apart and and waited essentially. Wow. Um, because Farmington was an inland community in the mountainous regions of of western Maine, the earliest missionaries that went up the coast and and converted over all the other local congregations never got there. And and so, hence Farmington, and it is from Farmington that that almost all the other wards and branches in Maine today trace their origins from. You get people leaving from Farmington and going to Skowhegan and setting up a little branch there and stuff like that. That's fascinating. Uh, even today, the Farmington ward is by far the largest uh, ward in Maine. Hmm. Larger than even the ones in Portland or Bangor. Wow. You know, it's kind of this little, you know, little tiny community. My wife says, my wife who's, who's from California says, geez, Greg, it's like going to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, all you Mormons here are so interbred with each other. That, <laughs> right, you know? right, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, you might well be in some small town in southern Utah. <laughs> That's great. So tell us how uh, your tell us uh, your early years. So my early years were, you know, a typical kind of New England upbringing. Uh, um, you know, local um, elementary school. I went to a a Jewish run junior high boarding junior high school in Massachusetts, and a Quaker run um, high school in Maine, Oak Grove, Coburn. Huh. And then a Mormon college, so I didn't get a whole lot of chance to act up, I guess. <laughs> Very uh, ecumenical upbringing, I'd say. You know, I, you know, the, you know, the Quakers aren't big into smoke and drink. And <laughs> right. That's fascinating. And so I, I you probably had a fairly sheltered education. <laughs> yes. Um, but, um, you know, I didn't say, you know, I, I believe I was... I was the alumni president for Okra Okra for a while, and I tried to find some other Latter-day Saint who went there, who, who was a Latter-day Saint when he went there, mm-hmm. he or she went there, and I never could find anybody. I found people who converted after they graduated. But. Now, did did the topic of masonry ever come up in your up through your high school years? I mean, or was that even? Oh, well, my father and my uncle and the Carneys have been masons for. Um, probably at least a millennia. Oh my goodness! It's an old family tradition. It goes way, way, way back. Um, when I gave the when I gave my presentation at the fair conference in August, 
I brought along because I predicted somebody was going to ask me, well, why would, did you become a Mason? And I had with me the Masonic, what I call the ciphers. The, it's the Masonic ritual in code form. And I said, and I pulled up mine. I said, here's mine. Here's my father's. Here's my grandfather's. Here's my great-grandfather's. And there's five more of these in my uncle's possession. Oh, my goodness. So it's an old, old carny tradition. It dates back. Um, my grandfather, my father's father, was a practicing, an actual, he actually cut stone in quarries. Oh, my goodness. That, that's what he did for work. Um, and so it's a family tradition. It's also very, very common in small New England towns and villages. Nearly every adult man I knew growing up was a Mason. Right. Uh, you know, the bishop, the, you know, everybody. Wow. You know, that that's just, you know, the social institution, kind of the social groove of the community. Hmm. That and the Grange, you know. <laughs> so it's just um, part of your heritage. Yeah, it's part of, you know, it's part of what I grew up with. It's, you know, I am, you know, the only male child of of my generation in my family. And and it would just assume that, of course, when I, you know, reached the age of 21, I would, you know, follow in the family tradition. So your family's participation in Masonry predates its membership in the church, even? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Masonry predates the church by... Right. A, a millennia. At least the modern church. <laughs> yeah, the modern, you know, the modern restored church, yes. Okay, okay, so college. Tell us about college. Um, got out of Oak Grove Coburn, um, did the usual prep school thing where you apply to three colleges. <laughs> right. Um, got accepted at all three, but could only really afford BYU. Right. Uh, this, was, this was before BYU got so pricey. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and it had, you know, had a, a fine program, and so uh, my sister had gone there, so I went to BYU. Hmm. And I studied uh, design, specializing in, in theater design. Right. Uh, you know, motion, television, motion picture, and stage design. Um, and did you, um, did you participate in masonry while you were at BYU then? Yeah, I I did some you know some study um, when I was taking my church history classes. I wrote some you know kind of you know basic papers. Um, uh, Reed Durham had just um, done his um, No Hope for the Widow's Son paper at the Mormon History Association uh, Association meeting. Give us a sense for the give us a sense up. for the time frame, the year approximately. Yeah, he he had done that about two years before I graduated high school, I believe. So is this? I'll start. I'll I'll start off kind. Is this in the eighties and the mid eighties and then? This was uh, seventy. He gave that in seventy four. I graduated okay. high school in seventy six. So this is during the Leonard Arrington era of church history. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I gave you know, um, yeah, I gave it kind of a cursory example. Um. I knew pretty much what to expect. Uh, by, the, by the time of the endowment, I had taken out my endowments, I was pretty well prepared. 
uh, my father had kind of sat me down and gone through the whole, you know, okay, Greg, you know, this is what, you know, you're about to see things in the temple that you've seen in the Masonic Lodge and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Right. So you had taken out... And that's one of the critical things that you, typically for men who are Masons who are not coming into the church, that's one of the groups that are really can be taken aback by this if they're not properly prepared. Yeah, I've never thought of it in that direction. Of of a yeah. mason struggling with things as they come into the church or, or get yeah. their endowments. Um, and I did some graduate work in American studies. Um, and I, at that point, because I was married, I was endowed, and I was a mason, um, you know, I had... I decided that the problem, the basic problem with the issue had been that everybody had been writing from it from a standpoint of a disadvantage. Yeah. They either were Masons, they either were Masons writing about a temple ritual they had never participated in, or they were Latter-day Saints who weren't Masons writing right. about a Masonic ritual they had never seen and been in. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm kind of uniquely suited, <laughs> you know, to pick up Brother Durham's challenge to study this and to look at this. How many of you and do you think there are? How many of you do you think there are in the church? Can you even speculate? How many? I can't even speculate. Though there is a joke in Masonry that there are more Mason, Norman Masons in California than there are Masons in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and that's probably true, actually. Right. Um, you know, I mean, in my experience. They all were. You know, that's why, you know, when I came to Utah, when I first came to Utah as an undergraduate and was told, and this was before the, the Utah Masonic Lodge changed their rules about visitation. Yes. And, and, members, and members of the church being Masons. Right. You know, you know my uncle was, like, fit to be tied when he discovered that, you know, they weren't going to admit Latter-day Saint Freemasons into the lodges in Utah. Right. Uh, you know, it's totally unmasonic. It it violates the ancient landmarks. Fortunately, it's water under the bridge. Yeah. You know, they changed the policy, and they don't do that anymore. And so, you know, okay, we all right. we all get a chance to repent. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let, you know, let me feel better. Let, yeah. Well, let me let me do something that's a little bit um, maybe an orthodox in an interview. What I want to do is pause your personal story. And go back and give the listener, let's say that, let's assume that the listener has only heard Mason and Mormon and heard that it's somewhat associated with the temple ceremony. But let's assume that the average listener really doesn't know much about this whole issue. What I'd like to do is to ask you some questions about the history of Masonry and then how it sort of came into Mormonism. And then we can bring it back up to your story and then talk about how that affected you, and then how you've worked it through. Does that make sense? Okay. So so the typical thing that uh, an LDS person or someone who studied this has heard is that masonry started in Solomon's Temple. Um, it was some society that was built up uh, when they were building Solomon's Temple that, um, that maybe some of those people who were in the construction work um, got privy to whatever ceremonies were going on within the temple then, 
and that that um, society continued long after that temple was destroyed and sort of persisted through the 1800s such that when Joseph Smith um, became a Mason in Nauvoo um, and learned about the temple ceremony, uh, the, the Masonic ceremony there, he recognized parts of it as being inspired. And then when he was developing the endowment, um, uh, he took the parts that he felt was inspired and of God and, and used them as inspiration for the temple ceremony that, that was developed uh, through him. So that's sort of, I'm just telling you what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the only other counter to that that I've heard is that um, some people have claimed, I think I've read, that masonry really didn't start until the 1600s. And so anyone that claims that it, you know, is predates Christ or whatever, it, that's just not historical. So I'm just giving you my 22nd version of all I know about the history of masonry as it relates to the LDS Church. Now, disabuse me of my uh, misperceptions. Okay. Masonry cannot be traced in any historical thread to, to Solomon's Temple. We use the story of the building of Solomon's Temple and the master builder Hiram Abiff as the framework for a clearly medieval origin ritual. The earliest reference we have to stonemason's skills of any variety, which is the likely origin of Freemasonry, is about 945 um, A.D. in the city of York in England. Um, so the notion that it goes back to Solomon's Temple just cannot be proven right. through historical record. Okay. Um, I know that's a it's a real appealing idea for Latter-day Saints. <laughs> right. But I don't believe that we have ever said that our ritual is the same ritual that was practiced in Solomon's Temple. Right. Um, we know what the ritual of Solomon's Temple was. It was the ritualistic slaughter of animals in similitude of Christ. Yeah. Um, the modern endowment, you know, modern, neither modern Latter-day Saints nor modern Jews practice the ritualistic slaughter of animals. Um, so I think we need to look to a more modern origin of the temple ritual than trying to thread the needle all the way back to Solomon's temple. Yeah, I think that may come. I know there's been a line of thinking among some, I think, prior uh, members of the church hierarchy that, that tried to say everything that exists now in the church existed you know, from Adam on, and so baptism and yeah. temple marriage, and I think they just kind of want to say there's continuity, the Lord doesn't change, and his ordinances don't change, and maybe that's a strain of thought that's yeah. tried to force-fit that back. I think, well, the central point of of my thesis, of the one that I gave at FAIR, that I give at Masonic Education Lectures, and anywhere else that I give the, my presentation, is the ritual... The endowment is two separate things. There is the endowment. What we learn, the promises we make, that is fairly well fixed. I mean, the law of chastity is applied since the time of Adam. Right. It hasn't changed, and it doesn't change now. Right. The way that those lessons are presented changes 
all the time. It's changed in my lifetime at least twice. Right. Um, and so we have what I call the message, which is what we're learning, what we're taking away from the te- our temple experience, and we have the messenger, how that material is presented to us. Right. It is my contention that many of the ritualistic elements of how we are taught the endowment have their origins in Freemasonry. Right. And that Joseph Smith, who was a keen observer of people and who served as large chaplain of his lodge, of his Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo, was able to sit there and watch how the Masonic ritual can teach very complex ideas of the Enlightenment to a bunch of uneducated, illiterate farmers, right. <laughs> essentially. But we, we forget, you know, Welch was probably heard as much in Nauvoo as English was. Ooh, I didn't know uh, that. I didn't know that. You know, well, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir originally sung only in Welch. I had no idea. Wow, that's fascinating. And the second language that the Book of Mormon was translated into was Welch. Huh. And so the idea that all of these, you know, we had this this great big city populated by, you know, nicely literate, <laughs> uh, you know, um, English literate people right. uh, is probably a myth. The, the 19th century... In the 19th century American frontier, reading and writing was a rare gift, usually only done by women, right. because they had the advantage of time to learn to do it. Men were expected, men and boys were expected to be out in the fields, or in the shop, or you know, working. Right. So, so he needed a means of communicating. These, some of these are really new ideas. I mean, one of the geniuses of Joseph Smith was that he received by revelation a creation model which makes modern scientific sense, or at least can work in the modern scientific world. Right. So he's teaching some pretty sophisticated ideas to a bunch of people who, many of whom can't read and write. You mean you mean stuff like uh, that matter was not created out of matter nothing. was not created nor right. destroyed it was right. organized you know all these you know that there are the, that the earth isn't unique in the universe. Right. Boy, you talk about an idea that must have you know just stunned people in the in the mid 19th century the idea that the, that hey you know the earth isn't special. <laughs> right. Particularly, you know. Uh, so, so he has these ideas, and he wants to communicate them. And what he sees in masonry is by rope repetition, questions and answers, you know, and repeating it over back and forth. Um, we don't do much of it anymore. They've they've cut a lot of that out of the of the endowment ritual to shorten down the endowment. But it used to be that you know everything was repeated three or four times, you know. Heavenly Father would give Jesus a, an, a, a, an instruction, and Jesus would give it to, you know, the apostles, and the apostles would repeat it back to them, and back it would go back and forth three or four times. Right. That teaching, that that idea of a instructional drama was so powerful to Joseph, because he saw what it could do by by watching these men walk in and learn these, you know, 
essentially the modern speculative masonry is a product of the Enlightenment. Let me let me just ask you about that real and quick. Uh, I'm so, so, I, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's but, fine. So, I, I know that um, I know that that um, I don't want to use the word secret or sacred, but but you know, keeping things uh, in an appropriate way in masonry is as important as it is in Mormonism. But given yeah, that, absolutely. is there is there anything that a that a non mason that that you can tell us about you know what the experience is without violating <laughs> i can i can tell you almost everything and and then the follow up question would be how much has that changed over time but go ahead and just tell us what the experience is when you're inducted that you can tell us and then we can okay. compare that in in masonry there are three degrees that you go through and each degree you memorize essentially the ritual of that degree and then have to repeat it back before you can go on and do the next one. When I was made a Mason, it was over over my summer holiday when I was in, in college, and I had to do the whole thing in one summer, and that was like virtually unheard of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and a, a testimony to how well I could memorize stuff, I guess. Right. But essentially, there's the ended apprentice, the fellow craft, the ended apprentice degree, the fellow craft degree, and the master mason degree. Okay. Um, each one is more complex than the previous one. Right. And so, essentially, the initiant is in the in the in the um, ended apprentice degree. The initiant is divested of all things metal on him, and it's to show that you come before the lodge. A poor blind candidate. You're blindfolded. You're divested of all metals. Um, you, you know, essentially to indicate that you don't come with any alternative motives. That you don't come planning to gain wealth or power or influence or anything like that. Okay. Um, you're essentially conducted around the lodge, and a little moralistic story is told. Um, you are then brought to the altar of the lodge, which is in the center of the room. There's, and this is another thing that's important, be important to Joseph. There is, in masonry, the idea of a book of holy scripture. It doesn't necessarily need to be the Bible. It can be any holy scripture which the candidate holds to be the revealed word of God. It can be a Quran. It can be Bible, the Quran, Gita. Yeah. In my case, it was the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, mm-hmm. and the Pearl of Great Price. The Quad. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what I consider to be the revealed Word of God. You're brought to that position, and you essentially, you make these promises, not, you know, that you will help fellow Masons, that you will help your fellow man, that you won't abuse women, that you, you know, uh, these various different kind of promises that you make. And then you are brought to further light in masonry. The blindfold is removed, and and you receive this series of lectures that probably have their origin in the Enlightenment, and instruct you about the values of education, about the values of personal morality, um, and so forth. You have to memorize essentially the entire ritual and repeat it back to an examiner before you're allowed to do the next degree. And the fellow craft degree is very similar to the ended apprentice degree. Similar kinds of things, similar, you know, story. The master mason degree is a little different. 
in the Master Mason degree, you play the part of Hiram Abiff, the master builder of Solomon's Temple, who was killed by three workmen attempting to obtain the secrets of a Master Mason that they might illegitimately work as such. It's in that way similar to the idea, it's the same sort of allegorical story of taking, you're to take upon yourself the part of this person. Mm-hmm. In the same way that in the LDS temple, we take upon ourselves the part of Adam and Eve. Yeah. It's the same sort of teaching form. Only it's a lot more dramatic <laughs> in the case of the Masons, who blindfold you, uh, they they take you to the different uh, ends of the, what's supposed to represent Solomon's temple, where the three workmen assault, you know, the candidate and say, you, you know, uh, tell me the secrets or die. Um, and the last one, the candidate hit with was was supposed to represent the setting mall, which is really just a great big kind of sponge rubber thing they bop you on the head with. <laughs> and but the whole time you're listening to the story being told, you're playing the part of Hiram of Beth. Right. You know, and at the end of it, you are raised as a master mason, usually in my case by my father. You are physically lifted up on, and this, some of your older, uh, or not older, not that much older, but some of your listeners will remember the five points of fellowship is the same right. five points. So let, so let me just, let me break in for a second here. Um, the first reaction I have as you telling me this is that he's going to get in trouble. I mean, I'm just thinking... I mean, I had. This I haven't in, told you any. I haven't told you anything that is a secret in masonry. Wow! So, so I, it, nothing that you couldn't read about in numerous books published by Masonic authorities. So that's a, that's a huge that's a huge thing for me. I had no idea that so much you were able to talk about. I thought almost the whole thing was completely. Is it is it only not no longer an issue like if you had told me this 200 years ago would you have been in trouble or is it only because it's sort of been exposed that now they're less uh, i don't think even 200 years ago huh. uh, i think there are you know there is uh, as in the temple there are specific things which i haven't told you right and which i won't tell you yeah, and i won't ask <laughs> and because i promise not to it's not because i hold them you know that they're sacred in the same way that the temple is sacred it's just that to my brother masons i have promised not yeah. Not to reveal certain things, okay. and I don't. Okay. So my second question about this is, you know, how much were you prepared for this from the Masonic standpoint, and then what were you feeling? Was this a spiritual experience for you? Was it emotional? Was it weird? You know, what as a teenager or as a young adult were you feeling during this whole well, thing? Well, I had read the whole Masonic ritual okay. prior to having it done to me. Okay. So, because you know, I had access to you know BYU library is very complete, <laughs> right? And 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 it has you know books you know the Duncan's Rituals of Freemasonry, and so I had I had had access, so I knew pretty much what was going to happen. Okay. Um, it was it was a nice emotional experience for to have my father and my uncle do it to know because I knew how important it was to them for me as the only male. Um, member of my family of my generation to continue, you know, this thousand-year-old carny tradition. <laughs> right. Essentially. Right. So, 
And uh, was there any was there any uh, reaction that some people have felt in the LDS ceremony, which is this is weird or I'm uncomfortable with this or you know? Well, I didn't. You know, I knew that it was a medieval ritual and that it had medieval. You know, there were lots of you know things that had medieval qualities to them. Um, it makes me. I, want... I didn't find I didn't find it particularly weird because I knew the origin and I knew the material were going in. I suppose if you didn't know that, yeah, it would probably seem kind of strange. So I'm kind <laughs> of the medieval world is very different from ours. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if we were able to be a little more explicit about what an LDS person was to experience in the LDS temple, whether that because I've I've rarely met someone who wasn't really shocked or taken back or even put off by the ceremony. I or, wasn't. It didn't bother me, but because because I had already experienced this. I think I was in a better position. Yeah, sure. I'm just saying. You know, I, I had whether... already, I had already seen a, you know, uh, essentially, essentially the the ritual we practice today in Freemasonry is pretty much unchanged from its nineteenth uh, its nineteenth century counterpart. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, you I wonder. Know, I, at... I wonder if other members today would benefit by knowing a little more beforehand than they do. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. So, so I knew, you know. I understood, and by that point, I had kind of developed this idea of the message of the messenger, and that I was perfectly willing to accept that Joseph Smith, had, who was a Mason, you know, had taken these elements and used them to teach the endowment, and it didn't bother me. Okay, so let's talk about Nauvoo for a second. So. We know. Tell us a little bit about you know. Did did Joseph get introduced to masonry through um, John Bennett? How did he hear about it? Now John Bennett was an, many many of the brethren were already masons by the time they arrived in Nauvoo. It was common in the 19th century to be so. Furthermore, Joseph Smith's father and elder brother Hiram were both masons in New York. In New York. Yes. Okay. Didn't know. So that. he grew up in a Masonic family. He was aware of masonry. Long, long before John C. Bennett and the and the crew in Nauvoo. So it was a family ritual. Along. It was a family ritual. Family. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was, you know, uh, you know, he would have seen his father's apron, you know, Masonic aprons, his brother's Masonic apron, um, you know, other, you know, the, the ciphers and things like that would would have been available to him. Would have been in, in the Smith home. Right. Uh, you know, as a boy growing up, and you know, as a young man. So, do you know what brought the Masonic Lodge to Nauvoo? How do we know about the origins? I, of well, that? Bennett was instrumental. I think it was a genuine desire after after the the business in Missouri. It was a general genuine desire to try to integrate the saints into a broader uh, uh, social community. And many of the saints already were Masons, and um, Grandmaster Jonas, who was a politically ambitious man, <laughs> if there ever was one, saw an opportunity, you know, to to curry favor with the largest city in the state. And um, you know, so there were lots of motivations going on there to to bring Masonry to the Latter Day Saints. So was this the head of the Masonic? Lodge in oh, the, the Grand Lodge in in, in Illinois. Ma yeah, Masonry. There is no national Grand Lodge. There is no national body that governs Masonry or global e or global even. No, nor global. Okay. E each Grand Lodge is a 
is an institution unto itself, I mean, completely self-governing. That's okay. how Utah was able to exclude Latter-day Saints for so long. Right. Because there simply wasn't anybody to say, no, you can't do that, <laughs> you know, because they're a self-governing organization. So how did um, Joseph make the transition from the, his affiliation? And he became a Master Mason, I, I heard. Is that is that right? He became a Master Mason. Edward, that was the highest degree. You hear a lot about, like, 32nd-degree Masons. Right. The highest degree of Mason you can be is a Master Mason. The other degrees, the so-called higher degrees, are supplemental but subordinate to the Grand Lodge of the state that they're in. Hmm. And so they're like extra little 19th century <laughs> add-ons. Right. But they're not, it's not that that anybody who, who does goes out and, you know, the, the secretary who runs the uh, secretary of the Grand Lodge in, in Utah once described it as, these are men with a real burning desire to pay dues. Right. <laughs> but right. in Joseph Smith's day, the highest degree that you that he, the Scottish right didn't exist in 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 Illinois at the time, you could only be a master mason. And I heard he was, I, he, I heard that he progressed at a very fast rate, faster than a yeah, lot of people. Yeah, he was he was made a mason upon sight by Grandmaster Jonas. It's a very rare honor, hmm. and what it means is you're made a master mason immediately. You don't go through the, all the steps. Like I did. Right. You, they just make you into Master Mason immediately. When Grandmaster Jonas was questioned about this, the reason he cited for making Joseph Smith a Mason upon sight was that Joseph was what is called in Masonry a Lewis. He was the son of a Mason. So Joseph has made a Mason upon sight, but he does not become Master of the Lodge in Nauvoo. There are four Mormon lodges created, two in Illinois, Nye, and Rising Sun in, in Nauvoo, and there's two in Iowa. He doesn't become a master of any of those. What he becomes is chaplain of the lodge. Hmm. It's the only office I've ever held in a lodge. Hmm. And it's an interesting one because you don't have to do much. All you have to do is memorize two set prayers, the one that opens the lodge and the one that closes the lodge. The rest of the time, you get to sit and watch everybody else do this stuff. Right. And it must have been extremely, um, the, the impact of it, as I said, must have been just tremendous on Joseph. I believe it was, because I believe what happened was he took the ritual that the saints already knew to teach what they didn't know, the endowment, because he wanted them to focus on the endowment. He did not want them focusing on the ritual. So he says, well, I'll use a ritual they know. It's already familiar to them. Mm. You know, they, they won't have to remember all, you know, you know, the ritual part, because they'll know it. <laughs> now, is there any writing you've read that says this, or are you sort of a, or sort of... This is, I'm inferring this. Okay. The, um, there have been several, there have been a couple of, of, of second-hand accounts written years later that say, well, Joseph thought that it came, you know, Joseph said it was the apostate temple ritual from Solomon's temple. Um, the problem with that approach is, is, is a couple. First of all, Joseph is only repeating what lots of 19th century Masons believed anyway. Hmm. 
that, that they were doing something that they did in Solomon's temple. Um, the other problem with it is, if it were, in fact, ancient revealed ritualistic practice, why do we change it? And we change it all the time. It's changed significantly from Joseph's day. Okay, so I have to ask here. So when did you first come to the realization that the Masonic uh, ceremony did not have its origins in Solomon's Temple? Was this something that's a, that's, that's a newer theory? Was this something that Masons have known for oh, 200 years? Was, I mean, this has been widely taught for probably the last 100 years. 100 I mean, years? Yeah. Okay. It's been, it's been widely recognized that there is no way to, uh, no reliable, historically reliable way to, to draw that line that way. I wonder if that I was a challenge of faith in Masonry for those... I think it was. I, I know there are plenty of Masons even now. I run into them even now who say, oh, well, you know, they did this back in Solomon's Temple. And I go, no, they didn't. <laughs> what do you... You know, the Bible's clear what went on, you right. know. You know, we don't, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, and I know Latter-day Saints who are just as equally as, you know, I mean, I've got, you know, this is my opinion. I don't suggest that I have some special, you know, knowledge from on high right. on this. Right. Uh, and I have plenty of Latter-day Saints who don't agree with me at all. Sure. You know, and say, you know, no, you're wrong. It's got to come from, you know, revealed from some ancient origin. Okay. Uh, okay. But I just, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't believe there's any. You know, I think you you, you tie yourself into knots trying to prove that point. And did Joseph? But just to, did Joseph believe that that it did have? I think origin? Joseph. I think Joseph believed that the Masonic ritual probably came from Solomon's Temple. Okay. Almost all Masons of his day believe that. Okay. There, there's no reason to to doubt that he didn't believe it. Okay, so you were saying so, he he um, he he uh, tried to bring it to Mormonism to make it a familiar ritual. No, I think he was using a familiar ritualistic form, right? Something that the saints already were were acquainted with. Essentially, he had the Lord reveal to Joseph these are the things the saints must know and must um, covenant to in order to be exalted in my kingdom. Joseph, it's up to you to teach them these things. Figure out you know, the best way to so do it. How that. do you figure out how to teach the, teach these and make the saints receive these covenants? Fascinating. And, you know, you work it out in your mind. <laughs> right. Essentially, and, and, um, and that's why, to this day, we have temple rituals that change to meet modern needs. The modern Latter-day Saint is no longer familiar with Masonry. He's probably not a member, of, you know. In, and so there were things in the endowment which, yeah, they meant something to somebody like me. Right. But they didn't mean nothing, or or worse yet, they were they were in some cases even troubling to a modern member. Yeah. And as the church has expanded and as it's become an international organization and spread throughout the world into different cultures and languages, a lot of this stuff didn't work and didn't communicate the endowment any longer. In fact, it was, in some cases, an, an obstacle to teaching the endowment. And so we 
make modifications under, you know, under direct priesthood authority to, you know, to move the kingdom forward, essentially. So what can you... I'm not bothered by that. Right, right. So, you know, for, for our listeners who are, let's say, I don't know, 34 years and younger maybe, they will have experienced a, a somewhat different temple ceremony than those who are, let's say, than somebody like my age. Yeah, or me. I was. I'm 36, yeah. and I, I was. Um, I, I went through before the changes that happened around 1990. But yeah. what? What? If you're, you, your, if you're in your early 30s or 20s, you you would never have experienced. Right. Okay, what, what, I, I just thought of one quick question I have to ask before we talk about the, the next thing, and that's, I heard that when. Um, that when John C. Bennett and Joseph Smith fell out of favor and John C. Bennett left Nauvoo, one of the things he did was run to the head mason in Illinois and say, Joseph's, you know, betraying and perverting the the sacredness of the Masonic Lodge. And that in some way that was um, a partial motivator for the animosity and the anger that led to his martyrdom. Is there any truth to that at all? I don't believe that. I've never read that, that Bennett did such a thing. Bennett became an adversary of the Church. With that, there is little doubt. Right. But I think, in fact, the, the fact that he didn't make a great deal about the similarities, he, he spoke some about the similarities between the lodge ritual and the, and the temple ritual. But that wasn't his main whipping boy. His main whipping boy was polygamy. Right. Uh, um. You know, the fact that he doesn't make a big deal about it, to me, indicates that, that the early members knew full well what was going on. They, they understood completely, you know, you know what was you know, go, going on. Now, there were Masons in the mob that killed Joseph Smith. Um, we, we know that. Um, How do we know that? There were, we know that because Joseph Smith gave a Masonic cry of distress as he was killed at Carthage, and several. Are you allowed to say were, what what he what he said? Are you allowed to say that? Uh, no, I'm not allowed to say. Okay, that. okay, <laughs> fine. okay, that's fine. But um, I will say that this is the title of Reed, Reed Durham's famous paper. <laughs> okay, and it's it's probably repeated in the manuals today. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The first part of it, "Oh Lord, my God," is is repeated in the manuals. Okay. Okay. Um, and with that, I've given any skilled uh, internet user enough information to <laughs> right. to find out the whole phrase. And I'm not trying to be sneaky here. I just yeah. It's it's also printed on the on the flyleaf of. It's also printed in in kind of semi code on the flyleaf of the Da Vinci Code. But but it's if I think, you read the bolded words on the flyleaf of the Da Vinci Code, right? So just so, for for right, for for our listeners though, it's it is true that both Joseph and I believe Hiram, when they were dying, made some statement that's supposed to be some type of signal to yeah, those like, who are coming a, after him to say, "Hey, I'm a Mason. A, We've agreed not to kill each other. Kill you're, not, each other. you're not supposed to kill me." It's is a that grand right? hailing sign of distress. Okay, and we know they gave it. And we know it was ignored, and there were several, you know, there was a lot of kind of agitation in the lodges um, surrounding Nauvoo about, hey, wait a second, you know, this guy was involved in the, you know, mob murder of a fellow Mason. Is that a pretty serious deal to, to kill him? Oh, well, you know, killing folks is, 
<laughs> yeah, pretty serious deal. You but, he, be, yeah. but within masonry, to kill another mason is a pretty huge. Is, is a, ex, yeah, extremely. You know, okay. Killing anybody is a serious offense. It's, it's you know, right. grounds for you know, um, expulsion. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um. So. So. Now I kind of lost my train of thought. Oh, no, 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 it's good. And so I just wanted to, I just, um, you know, I don't know that Mormons understand how uh, important masonry was towards the end of Joseph's life. And I think that does, I think it's important for us to know there was a Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo. Joseph was a Mason. There are parallels between um, the Masonic ceremony and the early endowment ceremony. And it was such an important issue in Joseph's life that even in his death and in Hiram's, some of his last words were Masonic. Um, yeah. You know, I, th- I just think I, l- I love it when the facts get laid out so that no one hears this stuff like my friend Tina from some third party and says, hey, yeah, oh, this they, is distressing, the, you know. What the anti-Mormons and critics of the church do is they use this business about masonry as a wedge because many Latter-day Saints don't know anything about it. Right. And so that makes the critic the expert. Right. You know, and the critic can say anything. And because he's become the expert in the member's mind on this whole matter, uh, you know, they can be, you know... They can pile it on. People off into strange, you know, know, like, you know, they can lead people off to the great and spacious building. Right. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So tell me what what can you tell us about the the I mean again I want my listeners and you to know that I have full respect for the um, LDS temple ceremony of us all uh, um, respecting the covenants we make, but we all know that the full ceremony in audio form and soon to be in video is on the internet. Uh, you mentioned to me before this program started that the Smoot hearings in the late night. Uh, 19th century, early 20th century, I guess, uh, revealed a great deal about the temple ceremony. So what can you tell us about what elements of the Masonic ceremony spilled over into the um, LDS endowment ceremony without violating your covenants in either segment? Okay. The, The basic ritualistic form, the idea of using an allegorical play in the case of the Masons, we use the story of Hiram of Beth. In the case of the Temple Endowment, we use the story of Adam and Eve. Okay. That idea is, I believe, came over from the Masons. The ritualistic form of questions and answers. We see less of it today than we used to. Right. But it's still there, you know, to a great part. Where in Masonry, for instance, the opening of the lodge... And it's always the same, and it's a set of questions asked by the master to the senior warden of the lodge. There are three three primary offices of the lodge, the worshipful master, the junior warden, and the senior warden. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say things like, Brother, uh, Brother Senior Warden, uh, satisfy yourself that all are master masons. And the senior warden looks around the room and says, I am so satisfied. And then he says, what induced you to become a mason? And the senior warden always answers the same way. He always says, the better to serve my myself and my family, uh, to work in foreign countries or such, receive wages, and to help in the relief of those poor distressed master masons, their widows and orphans. And it's always the same. It's this back and forth. Right. That 
element, that teaching element of questions and answers comes, I believe, from masonry. Okay. I, with Renaissance, there are certain physical actions which are common to both. However, they do not have either the same name or the same meaning. Hmm. And that's probably as far as I'm willing to go. Right. Um, right. Prior, prior to 1990, um, there was the five points of fellowship. There's also, the, both rituals use the square and the compass. Right. Uh, you know, uh, if the squares and compasses are the, uh, the fundamental uh, iconic imagery of Freemasonry. Right. You see it on our gravestones, you see it on our buildings, you see it, you know, just about everywhere we go. Yes. Um, and your Cadillacs. Yeah, and our, and our Cadillacs. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us who have Cadillacs. Uh, um, so both both use aprons. They mean different things. You know, one is symbolic of Adam and Eve's um, transgression in the garden. Um, the Masonic apron is representative of aprons worn by practicing stonemasons in, in quarries. Right. Um, now, on the FAIR website, I have written a paper where I go down through, I took an anti-Mormon who kind of gave us this laundry list of similarities, <laughs> and I kind of walk down through the laundry list going, yes, this is the same, and here's where they come from, and, you know, they both use you know, holiness to the Lord, and where does that come from? It comes from the Bible, and on and on and on. Right. Um, so, to a Mason, the things that they would find most similar are the ritualistic form, the idea of this of this telling of an allegorical play, of the question and answer form, and certain action elements, which are sub substantively similar, whose meanings and names are different. Okay, quick follow-up on that. For those who for those who went through before 1990, um, you know there was a there was a part that's since been removed where um, where the participant sort of indicates through some hand motions some ways that um, they'll receive punishment if they are to violate the promises within the temple. You could call them penalties, I guess. Is that something that also exists? Yeah, that also exists in Freemasonry and is still practiced to this day. And very very similar? Are they similar? or Duplicates. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Good. Well, I've, that, that's, that's interesting. So, any other similarities that come across, or is that a pretty good summary? That's a, that's a fairly good summary. So if you were if you were to go at high level, though, it sounds like the meaning is is fundamentally different, like the core content. So there's some structure around the the vehicle, the the ritual, the 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 delivery of the message. But it sounds like the messages are the messages are different. They're both they're both important messages. Um, I don't you know, and I don't. Masonry primarily deals with man's relationship to his fellow man. Right. The endowment is revealed information necessary for our eternal um, uh, progression and um, re you know receiving exaltation in the celestial kingdom. 
there's, you know, a world of difference between those two. <laughs> right. You know, one is eternal and and is absolutely essential, you know, for exaltation. The other is a nice and useful and good thing that men of goodwill should do. Right. But, you know, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not salvation in, 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 in nature. Freemasonry is not a religion. Right. We do not offer a means of salvation. Yes. I see uh, that. And that is absolutely central to the point. And one of the things that I have to deal with, you know, kind of, kind of when I work with fear and when I work in apologetics, is I'm answering not only critics of the church, but in my case, I'm answering a lot of church members who are, you know, convinced that masonry is akin to secret combinations. Right. And I think Fawn Brody writes about that in her in her book on Joseph Smith. I, I think I remember reading that there was some murder that happened around the time Joseph Smith was a young boy, and there was a yeah, lot the, of stirring. Yeah, the, the Morgan affair. And there was stirring that it was Masons who were involved. Masons and, who did it. It, it. it was, you know, it led to the anti-Masonic political party. Right. Uh, a whole party dedicated to anti-Masonry. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Um, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, as I point out, you know, when when members ask me about that, I said, you know, taking oaths to do good isn't a bad thing. <laughs> right. It, that, that isn't what the secret combinations did. The secret combinations didn't get together and take oaths to do good and to help widows and orphans. Right. You know, um, again, we know exactly what secret combinations were. Yeah. They were to kill to get gain. Right. And things like street gangs and the mafia and the Clan uh, fall into, you know, right. fall into that. And not the, the, the Al-Qaeda and things of that nature. So um, one question just pops to mind. Have, have any subsequent high-level church leaders that we know of been Masons too? Or did Ma our affiliation Brig with Masonry end with Joseph? Uh, no, and Brigham Young was. Uh -huh. Quite quite proud of it. Wore his Masonic stick pen his whole life. Hmm. There are photographs of him with it. Wow. Um, uh, John Taylor, um, Wilfred Woodruff, um, were Masons. I believe that it ended um, the affiliation of the high-level leadership ended as the Masonic Lodge in Utah as the you know the the Joseph F. Smith era essentially okay. um, uh, came into uh, into effect, and we had a situation in which Utah was excluding LDS members. By the way, they're the only Grand Lodge ever to do it. So you mean the early 1970s, Joseph F. Smith? So the early 18th, by 1872, the Grand Lodge in Utah was established, and they established a policy of excluding Mormons. Oh, they, okay. Which 18, they continued okay. until 1984. Okay, I was confusing Joseph F. Smith with Joseph Fielding Smith. Yeah, so, with Joseph okay. Fielding. So late 1800s. Uh, and, so, and so Joseph F. Smith became a man in in Utah Territory, Masonry was unavailable to him as a, as an institution because okay. he was a Latter-day Saint, and the Grand Lodge of Utah had excluded, decided to exclude okay. Latter-day Saints from membership. So the Mormons didn't shut out the Masons; it was the other no, way around. No, it was the other way around. Okay, that's <laughs> and interesting. And it was totally unmasonic. It totally—I mean, 
one of the things you know to ask is, what is your religion? What do you believe? Right. You know, you can believe. You know, I sit here in Casper, Wyoming, and I sit in a lodge here that has members who are Buddhists, who are Jews, one Muslim, a whole bunch of, you know, Heinz 57 varieties of Protestants. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, and me with the, you know, the lone Mormon. <laughs> right. No, that's um, beautiful, though. What a great way to unify the community. Yeah. And so, um, but but that's, you know, that was one of the, that's one of the basic points of, of Masonry was it was supposed to be, it's not a religion, and it it can be religious without being religion, and, you know, and kind of stand away from that, that whole idea. So I, I, okay, I have to break in with the question then. I was in Chicago, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, and I was at some wedding reception, and there was this African-American man who had a, a ring on him, a, a Masonic ring. And I started talking to him about it, and he just happened to mention that that uh, at that time, at least in Chicago, that the Masonic Lodge was segregated. That, yeah. that even in the even in the nineties, there were not um, bi multiracial in terms of blacks and whites together um, chapters. That the blacks had to have their own. Masonic temples and the the whites and others had their own. Is that true? And has that changed? That is sadly, as as much as we profess our good intentions, we don't dislike dislike church members. We don't always live up to yeah, sure. the high ideals that we we profess. Um, masonry was, um, with the exception of New England. Um, uh, segregated in many parts of the United States and, and in some places in the South remains so. Um, more now out of social convention than out of actual outright policy. Just where people live, they go to the temple near and it just happens well, they to get, be... You know, there's the, the African-American lodges and the and called Prince Hall lodges and the, you know, in and the white, you know, lodges. <laughs> essentially. Um, in most northern jurisdictions now, the two organizations have recognized each other as fellow Masons, and persons can now visit and join back and forth between the two. But full um, full integration maybe isn't... This, you know, and, and it's places like Wyoming, where the you know, African-American population is very, very small, they obviously don't have their own lodges, they just attend, you know, there's only one kind of lodge. So, are there are there Masonic lodges where blacks and whites worship or, or practice together? No, we don't worship in a Masonic okay, lodge. Right, right. Or they, we're not a church. Where they <laughs> affiliate? It's a business meeting, for the right. most part. By the way, you know, it's like you know, you know, are we going to help a widow with her with her mortgage and, yes. and stuff like that? Um, yeah, sure. In, in many northern jurisdictions, if you go to, you know, and particularly in small towns in the, in, in the northern parts of the United States where there may be, you know, only one or two, you know, African-American men in the whole town, of course they're going to be members of the, you know, you know, the local lodge there. But it's, it sounds like it's That would be the case here in Wyoming, for instance. But it sounds like it's something you'd like to see... Uh... Uh, I think the Civil War ended more than a hundred years ago, and it's time for these guys down south to stop fighting it. Okay, okay. So this is—I've <laughs> said that repeatedly. <laughs> 
So for those for those detractors of the LDS Church, there are even other organizations that maybe took a little bit longer than we did to to come around on the issues of. Well, the, yeah, you know, um, Martin Luther King said the most segregated place in America is ten o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he was right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay, so let's turn to give you a chance to, well, I want to give you a chance to evangelize your cause to LDS folk. And if you want to, just in masonry in general, but let's start with, um, let's start with uh, LDS folk. So, you know, a lot of people who have left the church or anti-Mormons are going to list masonry as one of their top 10 issues on why the church isn't true, on, on why people should be troubled, on, on why Joseph Smith was a fraud or whatever. So if you had to give, uh, you know, let's say someone who's ignorant about this whole issue or someone who's left the church because of it or someone who's right on the fence, really struggling with it, give us your, you know, five-minuter on why this shouldn't matter. Why it shouldn't matter. Or or why it's a good thing. Or why it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, First of all, I would say that let's get a few facts down right off the bat. Joseph Smith was a Freemason. So was Joseph Smith's father. So was his brother. So were almost all the men of Nauvoo in his day. Right. Uh, it was a common social institution. It provided Joseph with a means of teaching the saints important truths. If they have been, if these people have been to the temple, they know that these are eternal truths, and and that Freemasonry was the vehicle by which the, the teaching method of the endowment was developed and delivered to the saints. Freemasonry is not sinister. We're not trying to take over the world. We're a bunch of middle-aged men reenacting medieval stonemason guild practices. Um, I am thankful that Joseph was able to learn those principles and that teaching method, which is so effective at teaching the truths of the endowment. Hmm. Um, I think that they need to separate the endowment from the presentation of the endowment. And however the presentation got developed, you know, that's not the endowment. That's how it's given to you. Interesting. There you go. <laughs> That's it. That's it. No, I, I actually really, really appreciate that, and I have to admit, I've never, I've never looked at it that way before. Um, so that's really good. Um, so let me just ask you really quickly. Oh, well, two things. Has the church itself? I know you've been involved in fair. Um, and if you want to talk about uh, the website and how people can get up there and check things out and read what you've written, let's do that at the end. But has the church itself ever called on you or anyone else you know of to consult them on how to deal with this issue or how to talk about it or let's do an Ensign article or let's write some Deseret book so that we can, you know, catch this horse off at the pass before it, you know, runs away kind of thing? Is you know, that's the first part of a second two-part question, I guess. Okay, well, the answer to that is the church itself, no. Okay. I think the church 
relies upon an independent body known as FAIR to, to do that for them. And, and frankly, I think FAIR and the church like it, that, that, you know, that FAIR is kind of arm's length, <laughs> you know, from the church. But uh, I mean, okay, so let but, but no, they've never, they've never asked for an article, they've never asked for, um, you know, anything from me. At the same point, they've never, they've never said one, one word what about, you know, what I have presented repeatedly publicly. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm standing up in front of the fair conference in August speaking to 300 people about this. Right, and, and saying pretty much the same thing we've talked and about today. Saying the same thing I'm saying here. Okay, so I haven't asked you, you know. to talk about anything you haven't already talked about before. So they, they, they've never, you know, at the same point, they've never said, you know, Greg, you're wrong, or don't talk about this, or, you know, they've never done that either. Okay. They've... Do, do you think, you know, I, I think about, you know, the Masonic issue and the, well, let me just back up for a second. I, I, a professor of mine at BYU, his name is Ted Lyon. His dad was T. Edgar Lyon, who was uh a really important church historian and educator. He was also the church's expert on Nauvoo uh, in the 60s and 70s. And one of the things he told, one of the things I read, I think in Dr. Lyon's book, was that when the church really started uh, restoring Nauvoo, um, one of the things they did uh, when they were putting signs up on all the buildings to... Uh, um, to let the visitors know what the buildings were at the time of Joseph Smith. When it came time to put the sign on the Masonic Lodge, they put like cultural hall or something. They, they just <laughs> didn't. They didn't. And, and I think that's pretty much fact. That that's what I think. They well, did. I've been to Navajo, and I've seen the sign, and they do call it the cultural hall. Okay. Which which I am always bemused at because Joseph wouldn't. Have, you know, you go what. <laughs> You know? Right, right. But uh, but the rest of the sign, when you read the whole sign, it says that this building was used as the meeting place of the Masonic Lodge. Okay. And if you pester enough, you can go upstairs on the third floor where the lodge hall was. And in my presentation, I show a diagram of how that room would have been laid out in Joseph Smith's day and where people would have sat. Wow. You know, Hiram Smith would have sat here, and Joseph would have sat here, and right. Porter Rockwell there, and stuff like that. <laughs> well, I guess what um, I'm what I'm kind of I've asking, always wanted them to restore it and have the have the room set up the way Joseph would have known it. Well, the 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 reason why I'm asking the question is, you know, there's there's the there's the issue of Masonic Lodge and the the issue of the blacks and the priesthood, and there are like five or ten issues that. It's like the crazy grandmother in the basement, you know. It's like the elephant. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the elephant in the room that you don't want to acknowledge. Yeah, if nobody says there's an elephant in the room, <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> right. So here's my question to you, and I I don't think that either you or I are in the position to really advise the church, but you know I just I I want to ask a question anyway. You know, Let's reach what, out and study that art. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to do that, but I do want to just, you know, if, if there's a way we can help the church through a dialogue some way, you know, maybe yeah. it could happen. Well, so my question you know, would be, why, why not just, you know, get up in general conference or out in the open or write some ensign article and say, hey, look, here's our position. You know, this happened. It's actually not a bad thing. Here's why it's not a bad thing. And here's why you should, because then, 
Nobody's going to, you know, then if it's taught in seminary is a little small little blurb. And if it's mentioned in Sunday school once a year and everybody knows about it, it's like they've been inoculated such that when an anti-Mormon comes at them with it, they're like, so what? You know, that's a good thing. And here's why. And they can give the same answers you did. You know, why Uh, can't we get to the point where we can just be honest about it? You know, I think we have bigger fish to fry than, than some esoteric discussion about Masonry's influence in our temple endowment. Really? Sure, we do. No, we no, I know there. I know that. And the priesthood. <laughs> no, but no, no, but you know, I, I know that. I know that we need to talk about the plan of salvation and the atonement, and that's all yeah. huge. But this is a pretty big stumbling block for people. I think. I think if we get enough, you know, if there are enough people who realize, you know, you can you can go ask this question. You know, if you have this question, here's a place you can go to. You can go to FAIR. They've got a paper, you know. They've got a person, Greg Carney, who will send you back an email explaining all this, you know, if this becomes an issue. Right. I mean, I don't think we need to get up in general conference. (laughs) Or in the inside, just because it would maybe create more problems than it would solve. Yeah, maybe, you know, it might, one, it might create more problems than it it would solve Yeah. uh, for some people. And, you know. It's just, you know, I, I say, you know, you know, I spent a lot of time studying this. I say, you know, this is like looking at American history by looking down a straw. <laughs> right, know? right. And so I got this little narrow view of church history, <laughs> you know, just to do with this one little esoteric subject. No, I hear you, but it, but it is a, um, it is one of the I top think we can, five, ten stumbling The best way we could deal with it would be to restore the lodge in Nauvoo to the, the way it looked right. in just this time take people up there, tell this was the Masonic Lodge, and we reconstructed it as closely as we can to what it would have looked like in his day. Right. And that's all we need to say. You know, and then, um, and, you know, and I always get a joke of, when they take you up there, they take you up to the third floor, at least last time I was there, and say, we know that they used to use this for dances because we can see the patterns, the dance patterns <laughs> on the floor. And I go, no, those aren't dance patterns. Those are the trademarks of hundreds of men <laughs> doing the Masonic ritual and walking in a circle. But see, a different, and this is where I think the apologetic <laughs> thing comes in, because, you know, some people are going to go to that and say, we're being lied to, we're being misled, this is deception, but you totally don't see it that way. Tell us, and I value that, I want to hear that. So tell me why that doesn't make you just furious and say, makes, I'm leaving I, I get, because it's I, I fraud get deception. I don't get furious. Um, Help us see why, so that we can. These people, these members, the, these people doing these tours, know almost nothing about masonry. Right. Probably all they really know about masonry, at least most of them, is that this was a Masonic lodge. Right. This was used. This building was used as a Masonic lodge. That's about it. Right. Uh, and 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 Latter-day Saints are Latter-day Saints are great, kind of repeating, kind of the, you know the. Whatever the last <laughs> tour guide told them, that's what they'll, re- they'll right. keep saying. Right. Um, you know, and I remember I went up with with one of the tour guides. They, I, you, like I said, you probably have to beg to get up on the third floor. Right. And I said, you know, I went around the room and I stood in each of those positions where the officers of the lodge sat, and I said, "This is where." John C. Bennett sat. This is where Joseph Smith sat. This is where Hiram Smith sat. This is where he was he was Kimball sat. Hmm. You know, there would have been you know this chair here, 
here, here, and here. There would have been an altar here. There would have, you know, wow. you know, um, uh, um, Porter Rockwell would have been without the door with a drawn sword as the Tyler. I would like to meet up with him as a Tyler. He <laughs> 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 put the fear of God into you. Yeah. <laughs> sounds um, like sounds like a dream of yours would be to help participate in the restoration of that room to its. Oh, uh, that room. Because we know exactly, we know exactly what it looked like. I have 1840s era ciphers from Illinois huh. in my collection. Wow! And we know exactly where everything would have been. Hmm. You know precisely. And I drew a diagram for my my uh, little lecture. Um, That's fascinating. Well, let's um, let me unless there's something else you want to talk about, I, I can I can close with sort of a final request. Okay. Anything anything you want to throw in before I ask you a final question? Uh, well, now you can go ahead and and okay. Go ahead and ask the okay, final so question. here it is. So uh, I don't know if you're comfortable recruiting for Masons, but if you were to sort of, I, I imagine that the Masonic Lodge experiences what other, you know, the Elks Lodge or the you know the Eagles Lodge or whatever is experiencing, which is an aging population, maybe even a shrinking membership maybe a concern about reaching out to the youth of today to get new members, et cetera. So if you had to give your, put your salesman hat on, if that's something you even are interested in doing to say, Hey, people should give the Masons a look because they contribute to society in a positive way. Do you have a, a little pitch you'd give? Oh, I, um, masonry doesn't go out and recruit members. Right. We wait, for, like the Jews, we wait for people to come to us. You know? Right. Um, but at the same point, um, you know, I've had people, you know, members ask that. And I think masonry represents a kind of a unique social institution. It's clearly it's the oldest fraternal organization in the world. Right. Um, it, its roots are deep in American history, and it presents a kind of a unique opportunity for Latter-day Saints to see you know, the world as Joseph saw it, as Joseph experienced it, because pretty much our rituals and our practices are unchanged from Joseph's day. Um, we do good works. We support hospitals for children that have never charged anybody a dime to go there and be treated rich or poor. Um, we do good works in the community and we're probably one of the few fraternal organizations that Latter-day Saints can join knowing that there won't be any drinking. <laughs> oh, is it forbidden? It's forbidden in the Blue Lodges to drink, yes. Oh, wow. I didn't know. Uh, and so it's an organization which supports and upholds um, our values. Um, it supports and upholds our view of that, that we have a set of scriptures that is, you know, in addition to the Bible. And not every large member may accept those scriptures, but they're going to accept that you accept them. Um, and and as said, we have so few things that have come down to us from medieval times, reasonably intact. Um, and and this is one of them. And they have one of the best genealogical records you've ever seen. Right. And untapped, virtually untapped genealogical records are just amazing you know depth of, of information that's you know 
available. So it's not only an important part of our religious heritage, but part of our nation. It's an important part of our, of our civilization. Right. Um, it has struck me odd that there is nowhere, at least that I know of in the English-speaking world anyway, where you can go and do formal academic studies in Freemasonry and its influence in Western civilization. Right. And so here it is, this, this institution which had this huge impact and is still relatively unstudied. Yeah, which I, th I, I find too bad. I think it's because people feel like they're not supposed to study it or something, but you've helped us see through that. Yeah. That there's a lot you can know and can study. There's without... a lot you can know, you know, this, you know it's, so, I, you know, I guess if, if a man is interested in being an asset to his community and in bettering himself um, and in, in being able to meet with men, I meet with men that I would never encounter any other way. I mean, I just wouldn't come in contact with these men. Right. You know, um, and I think sometimes a lot of these things are kind of inward-looking. You know, it's like they, you know, the Latter-day Saint man knows all the men in his quorum, <laughs> but not the man across the street. Right. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, this is a way to do that in a fraternal organization that doesn't violate your, you know, you know, your religious principles. Or your priorities, yeah. You know, or your, or your priorities. And, you know, you, you know, you can, you, it's perfectly possible to make masonry and get way too involved in it. Sure. Just like but anything. You can, do that at the, you can do that at the country club or right. at your job. Or with the church. You could, or at the church. Yeah. yeah. You, could you can, you can do that the way you're neglecting your family responsibilities. Right. Right. So, and and masonry specifically warned you against doing that. Right. As you progress with the degrees, they're always reminding you. You know, you, you shouldn't. You know, place first. masonry ahead of your responsibilities to your God or your family. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I just must say that um, you're a, an incredibly positive uh, spokesman, both for uh, for masonry for our church and for fair um and so i just i just can't thank you enough i have learned a ton i mean i've taken this issue which was on my top 10 list of worries or concerns and it's all of a sudden disappeared from the list so i just want to thank you so much for coming on mormon stories and for telling your story okay thank yeah. you yeah well once again we'd like to uh um thank greg kearney is it Yes, Carney. Carney. Like the town in Nebraska. <laughs> okay. We'd like to thank Greg Carney for coming on Mormon Stories today. We'd like to thank all you listeners for bearing with us. It looks like this podcast is going to be about an hour and 30 minutes. So those of you who have made it to the end, next time I see you, I owe you uh, an ice cream. Um, we'd like to remind you that you can um, you can read more about this uh, interview up at uh, www.mormonstories.org. Um, we have a blog up there now, so if you want to give uh, comments to Greg or give him feedback or us, we'd love to have you post them there. I think I can convince Greg to come up to my blog, and if there are questions for him there, um, I think he'd probably be willing to answer them. Is that right, Greg? Oh, yes. I answer questions all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's also fair to say, since I found you through FAIR, to uh, also let the listeners know that if they ever want to learn more about uh, what Greg's written on this subject or on any subject 
um, related to, let's say, anti-Mormon allegations or issues with church and history, they can also go up to fairlds.org. Is that the right URL, Greg? Yes. Okay, yeah, go up to fairlds.org and uh, look up in their topics, the papers, and you can read up all about this stuff. So I just want to close and thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks so much for joining us at Mormon Stories. Uh, please send us email, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much. Depth of your dreams, the height of your wishes.